while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we didn't deserve it. Your word teaches the only thing we deserve is what justice demands, for you said the wages of sin is death. But we're so grateful that you who set the penalty was willing to step out of heaven in the person of the Lord Jesus to die in our place, to take the punishment that we might be forgiven and find life indeed. Thank you that by trusting in Christ, we are born from above, that the Spirit comes to indwell us and to change us from the inside out. We know that when we receive you, you told us that we become a baby in Christ. So help us to grow. We want to grow. Thank you that you liken the Bible, your word, to milk, meat, honey, bread, food terms. So help us to feed on it. You said like newborn babes, we are to long for the pure milk of the word that we might grow. Jesus, you quoted Moses and said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So please help me. I am here, Father, not to share my opinion, but your word. Give me the power of this spirit now and tonight as we meet again for our guests and visitors that have come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take God's word, would you, this morning, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts 8. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a very important question. What is the single greatest event that has ever happened in your entire life? Well, if you're a Christian, without stammer or stutter, you would give one answer. The day I became a Christian. Well, my second question is very predictable if you would say that. What's the greatest thing that you could share with someone else? Well, how they could find forgiveness, how they could come to know Christ. Well, why is it that so many Christians are silent? They don't share their faith. I mean, I'll meet Christians, I'll I'll do anything, Pastor, you know, I'll pass out bulletins, I'll lick envelopes, I'll serve in the nursery, I'll, I'll even clean the restrooms, but don't ask me to witness. There are several reasons I think Christians feel this way. One is they're afraid. Sometimes it's unpredictable what your encounter will be. Maybe someone will put you down. Well, we studied that last week. Jesus said, if they receive my word, they'll receive yours. If they reject my word, well, they'll reject you, for the servant is not greater than his master. Well, they might ask me a question that I can't answer. Well, that's okay. You can just say, I don't know the answer to that. But there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. There's an answer for every question people have. Or maybe you hear these glowing testimonies of people who bring people to faith in Christ and say, well, let's let the professional do it, the missionary, the evangelist, the pastor, and we sit back. And I suppose the worst reason is someone just says, I don't care. Their heart has become so cold and so calloused that they really don't care about people who have never found the forgiveness that they have found. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about new life. We're talking about that when we die, we are prepared to meet God, but we are also prepared to live this life today. Now, the Scripture says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he is committed to us. He doesn't write the gospel in the sky. He is committed to us the word of reconciliation, to be reconciled is to be made right with God. As though God were entreating, begging, pleading through us, 
Paul says, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Have you ever thought about that, that Christians are called ambassadors for Christ? You represent the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And of course, the Scripture affirms that there's coming a day when the Great Commission will be fulfilled. Jesus predicted this. He prophesied it in the Olivet Discourse, that before His second coming, during the time frame that we call the Great Tribulation, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. After the church is caught up and raptured, God will be finished with the Gentile church, for that's largely what it is with a small minority of Jews in our day. All the other nations are called Gentiles. God will then use 144,000 Jews in Israel to preach the gospel to the whole world. That's going to happen. It's not by accident when preachers 100 years ago preached about Israel that they were laughed at. Israel, they haven't been a nation since 70 AD. Moses said they'd be scattered to the four corners of the world. Jesus said that in Luke 21 as well. But God said at the end of time, He would gather the Jews. The first gathering is He brings them back into the land. And after the church is removed, 144,000 Jews are going to present the gospel to the entire world. And so John in Revelation 7 sees people from every nation and tribe and tongue standing before the throne of God, saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So why is it that Christians are so silent today? Look, the fact that it is going to be one, the gospel is going to go out to the whole world, doesn't excuse our responsibility today. And so last time, we spoke about how to share Christ courageously, if you were here. Today, we want to speak about how to share Christ consistently. Now, if you're here for the first time, I typically go through entire books of the Bible. We just finished the epistle of James, and God willing, before the fall is over, we'll begin a new Old Testament book. But right now, I'm doing a special series, four messages on effective evangelism. And so this morning, we're going to look at Acts 8. Let me set the context for you. There's a man by the name of Philip. He's later dubbed Philip the Evangelist. He's one of the first deacons in the church. And in the first half of the chapter 8, he's doing this fantastic revival up in this place called Samaria. But then God removes him from Samaria, has him go south to preach to one single individual. And that's where we are this morning. Acts chapter 8, if you don't have a Bible, all the Scripture will be on the screens. You can follow along. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its share is silent, 
so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So how are we going to reach our fullest potential in being consistent and sharing the gospel with people? Three simple truths. If you're here, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin. If you're online, you can print it out there online. First, you must be sensitive to the call of God. You must be sensitive to the call of God. I want you to see how Philip the evangelist was sensitive to God's call. And let me just say parenthetically that one of the roles of an evangelist like the role of a pastor teacher, is not to do all the work for God's people. Ephesians 4 says the evangelist, the pastor teacher, is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so one of the ways that they do that, among other things, is they model how to share Christ. You have to be able to say, follow me like I follow Christ. And Philip followed. He was a great model. Now, according to verse 4, they're in the capital city of Samaria. Be like saying New York City, New York. This is Samaria City, Samaria. And we're told in verse 25, a powerful outreach had been unfolding. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So this uh, outreach that began in the city of Samaria had spread to the neighboring villages. But suddenly, unexpectedly, we're told in verse 26 that he had an encounter with an angel. Look at it. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Here's a map. Helps you to see where we're at. Um, he's in Samaria. He goes down this desert road to Gaza out there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. We speak of the Gaza Strip today. North of that is Azotus, and we just read after he lands in Azotus, he kept preaching the gospel all the way up to Caesarea. So he is taking a 60-mile journey from Samaria City, Samaria, all the way down to this place, Gaza, and an angel appeared to him, and this angel basically says, this is what God wants you to do. By the way, have you ever wondered why God didn't just say to the angel, you go preach the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch? Well, number one, God didn't commission angels to preach the gospel. He gave the great commission to every born-again believer. We are to preach the gospel. But number two, angels have never experienced God's grace. He's describing here an unfallen angel who had never sinned. Angels are in two major categories. The unfallen, they're called holy angels. The fallen angels are called, of course, demons in Scripture. And so God didn't say to angels, go and make disciples. But to those who have experienced grace and forgiveness, he has called us to do that. 
Now, as best I know, God has never had an angel speak to me, but it's possible that you've encountered an angel. The writer of the Hebrews says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Angels can come in human form and look just like a regular, ordinary Joe. There may be an angel sitting next to you this morning. You say, he looks more like a demon to me, Pastor. (laughs) Listen, you can encounter an angel and not know. In fact, the angels are here this morning. They are observing us as we worship, 1 Corinthians tells us. So this angel of God, a messenger comes, and he gives them a simple command. Now, sometimes Christians say, well, why doesn't God use me more? Well, sometimes we're not usable, and we're not usable because we're not available. Remember how Philip was described in Acts 6 and verse 3? We're told he was full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. God never leaves a surrendered vessel unfilled, and God never leaves a filled vessel unused. If you're surrendered, God, anytime, anywhere, any place, if you are willing to say, God, here I am, Whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to give, I am totally yielded to you. Then I tell you, God will use you. Now, here's Philip, sensitive to the call of God, a yielded man. And I want you to notice three aspects of the call of God on the believer's life. First, God's call is often unforeseen. Point A on your outline, it's often unforeseen. Philip had no way of knowing how God was going to use him in such a strategic sense to bring the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch. God said through the angel, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Here's a picture of a section of that road. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and uh, this is just one section of that desert road. Look, he's no wimp. He's a man's man. 60 miles through a hot desert region. We have too many effeminate men in the pastorate today. We need some real men who will respond to the call of God. This was no easy journey. And of course, he meets this man who had come from North Africa. Uh, North Africa, it's a long journey. He had traveled the eunuch over 200 miles to go to Jerusalem. In the providence of God, he leaves Jerusalem Philip's up here in the north, and in God's perfect timing, they're going to cross paths. Now, again, Philip didn't know that God was going to use him in this way. He just goes because the angel of God tells him to go. That's all he understood to do, and he walked in obedience. Secondly, the will of God, God's call is often unfolded. It's unfolded. Now, by unfolded, I mean that God doesn't always reveal his will all at once. He unfolds it for us. You shouldn't be asking, well, God, what's your call and plan for my life six months from now or six years from now if you've not done today what God has shown you to do? Now, don't misunderstand me. God wants to lead you. God wants to show you his will. He's not trying to hide it. King David said this in Psalm 31.3, for you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. Likewise, uh, the Jews sang this from Psalm 37, 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. But if you've not obeyed clearly what God has shown you to do from his word, then he can't unfold the next step. Do you remember the conflict Jesus had with the religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians in his day? He said this to them in John 7, 17. If any man is willing to do his will... 
He shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Jesus said, any man can know my teaching, whether I am whom I say I am, if you are willing to obey God. That's a powerful, powerful statement. Now, the religious leaders to whom he was addressing, they were unrepentant rebels. They were unwilling to call their sin, sin. They thought they were good enough. They didn't really see their problem as all that bad. But if you're not willing to do God's will, God can't further unfold his will. And some want to find God like a thief wants to find a policeman. And they wonder why it is that they don't know the will of God for their life. You see, the real problem is not a lack of apologetic. We have a reason why we believe what we believe. We're going to look at a section of Scripture in this whole dialogue that was written 700 years before it happened. The only book with fulfilled prophecy in all of history is the Bible. There's no fulfilled prophecy in the Quran, none in the Book of Mormon, none in the Upanishads, none in the Vedas. Only the Holy Scripture has fulfilled prophecy because only God can foretell the future. So it's not a problem of apologetics. The real problem is people don't want to do God's will. They want to suppress the truth. I was dealing with a man recently, and he's been living with this woman to whom he's not married for several years, and whatever I said to him, it just fell on deaf ears. I care about him. I want to win him to the Savior. But, you know, when people don't want to do God's will, it's like, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if the Bible's true. I don't know if Jesus is Lord. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, because they don't want to know. And so, sadly, sometimes genuine believers fall into the same snag. They're walking with God. They're obeying God as much as they know. And then all of a sudden, God unfolds from the Scripture a new aspect of obedience that they had not seen before. And they say, ooh, wait a minute. I don't know I want to do that. And they stop growing. And they wonder why God is no longer illuminating Scripture to them, why their Bible study is so dry, why they don't seem to see answered prayer. It's because they're out of the will of God. What if Philip, back in Acts 6, do you remember the first deacons are found in Acts 6, and they need seven men filled with the Spirit and of wisdom to wait on tables? What if, what if Philip said, that, 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 that's below me. I'm not going to wait on tables. God never would have used them in this encounter. See, we often don't get to step B because we're unwilling to obey step A. Anytime, anywhere, any place, any cost, here I am, Lord, I am available to your will. This is why Jesus said in Luke 16, 10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous in much. So we need to be sensitive to God's call. It's unforeseen. It's unfolded. Third, God's call is often unexplained. It's often unexplained. Look, if you will, now at verse 26. Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And what was Philip's response? So he got up and went. God said, get up and go. He got up and went. I love that. And he goes under sealed orders. He doesn't know the what of God's plan, but he knows the who. He doesn't need to know the why because he knew that this came from the loving hand of God Almighty. One of his angels was dispatched from the presence of God in heaven, and he had been given a direct order. So it's wonderful to see what happens. Here's this man who comes to Jerusalem. He's lost. He's searching. He's looking. 
He's hoping for truth. Here is this yielded believer by the name of Philip, and God brings the two together. And that's the way it often works. If there's an available believer and a lost person, the Lord brings them together. I was in Lowe's some time ago. You know, I often ask people, I'll say, you know, and I'm sensitive. There's a line of people behind me. I'm not going to dialogue. You know, who is this guy? What's his problem? You know, and I just said, hey, by the way, do you go to church anywhere? She said, no. I said, well, I'd love to invite you to the church I attend. She didn't know I was a pastor. And she said, I'm not interested. Thank you. I'm at the end register. Here's this counter. And the lady, I think she's some kind of administrator or store manager. She said, well, I'm interested. I said, hold on just a second. I'll be right with you. And I invited her. She said, yeah, my daughter and I moved here, single mom, searching. And I said, well, you should come next week. She came the next week. She came to meet the pastor. She received Christ as her Savior. I baptized her. She was active here for two and a half years, and then she moved to another city, and we helped her find a church there. See, that was the sovereign hand of God. God has a way of bringing people together. And so God wants to do that. He works on both ends of the spectrum. He works in the heart of the believer. He works in the heart of the unbeliever. And this is a beautiful picture of it. Philip is given the call of God to travel 60 miles south to Gaza. Here's this man leaving. But in the foreknowledge of God, this man who's leaving Jerusalem, God in his foreknowledge knows he's got a servant to whom he needs to meet. God knew about this Ethiopian eunuch. He knew the position he held. He knew that he had an unsatisfied hunger for God. He knew that he had a book of the Bible that he owned, that he had been reading and studying. He knew that he had just left Jerusalem empty, unfulfilled, not finding truth. And God unfolds the events. God says to Philip, get up and go south. So he got up and he went. I mean, this man is sensitive to the living God. He doesn't argue. He doesn't need an explanation. In fact, if he hung around, oh, I got to pray about this for a couple. He had a clear word. He didn't need to pray about it, except that God would help him as he went. He had a clear, if he had delayed, he would have missed the chariot. In fact, the timing is so close, he has to run up and catch the chariot. He's sensitive to the Lord God. Now, there will be many people today who will attend churches all across America and they'll say it's just a waste of time. And you know what? Most of them are. They're just a total waste of time because some man gets up and blathers for 20 minutes. You come here, it's an hour long, strap your seatbelt on there in the pew. <laughs> and, and, and he blathers for 20 minutes about nothing. And it's so boring and no one speaks to your heart. Why? Because you're not speaking the truth from the word of God. Look, all the time, God is bringing people to himself, and if we have eyes to see it, he can use us in that process in some way. I think of the Lord Jesus, who had a compulsion to go through Samaria. He didn't go up along the Jordan River. He didn't go up along the coastline. He went through Samaria, something a Jew never did, because he knew there was a woman there. And of course, that woman goes back and God brings a whole town to Christ. And then Jesus says to his disciples, I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Very often when I'm privileged to introduce someone to Christ, I'm just entering into someone else's labor. 
Maybe a grandmother, maybe a mother, maybe a brother or sister has been praying for them. Oh, Lord, they need Christ. They don't see their need. Show them, open their eyes. Maybe someone else had shared with them 10 times ever before I got to them. And you enter into someone else's labor. John the Baptist had been in this area plowing the soil. These people were ripe to hear the gospel. So verse 27, he got up and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, or Candace as the Brits would say. Candace is not her name. That's a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. She's queen of the Ethiopians, who was in the, and the eunuch was in charge of all her treasure, and he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, eunuchs, of course, were altered men. They usually were over a king's harem, but very often, if they were faithful, they rose to positions of power, and this man, under modern terms, was the secretary of the treasury. Now, we know he's not a Gentile because Acts 10 tells us the first Gentiles to come to faith is Cornelius, or Cornelius, if you prefer, in his household. Um, If he was emasculated and castrated both as a eunuch, then at best he was a God-fearer. Uh, If he had only been castrated, then he could have been circumcised, and under the New Testament, he was called a proselyte. He could have been a direct descendant of Solomon. Solomon had married a number of women under the Old Covenant. He wouldn't be considered a believer today, but under the hardness of heart, under the Old Covenant, God allowed certain things, never endorsed them, but allowed it. And of course, uh, during uh, some years ago, there was a huge exodus from Ethiopia, Black African Jews, they had descended from Solomon. And the Israeli government, they had like three hours. The Ethiopian government says, you have three hours. And there was this massive exodus, and they airlifted 13,000 Ethiopian Jews into Israel. So whoever this man was, we know he was not a Gentile. We know he had traveled some 200 miles. We know he went to Jerusalem to worship. We know he left empty like millions of Americans will today. They'll go to different types and stripes of churches where the gospel is not preached, the Bible is not open. Verse 28, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. He was reading out loud because that's very often what people do in this part of the world. If you've been to the Western Wall with me, You'll see Jewish people praying out loud or reading the scriptures out loud. Why? Because they want to give their full concentration to what they are saying or to what they're praying. They're not trying to practice their righteousness before men. They're, they, they just take the scripture seriously. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading the Septuagint. As you know, most Jews read Hebrew, but there came a time when they lost their ability to read Hebrew because of the deportation. And so they read their Bible in Greek. And so you see Philip quoting the Greek translation here of the Old Testament, or Luke uh, recording it for us, what this man is reading. So he's a eunuch. He's educated, educated enough such that he can read Greek. A lot of people were illiterate. Uh, He's in an executive position uh, that allowed him to travel to Jerusalem. He's wealthy. He bought a scroll. You know how expensive a scroll was? Very few people owned a personal scroll unless you were extremely wealthy. But it was important to this man. Maybe he had met a rabbi in, in Jerusalem, and the rabbi says, I know you're a eunuch, and I know there are some restrictions based on you, based on Deuteronomy 23, but hey, look, there's a really positive future for eunuchs, and there's this prophet by the name of Isaiah 
who speaks about it. You can go home and read Isaiah 56 if you're interested. And we'll see in just a minute that under the providence of God, he's going to be in a section of Isaiah. Isaiah is no small scroll. It's a section of Isaiah that preaches the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Again, verse 29, then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. He's sensitive to the Spirit of God. Remember, he had never asked why he should get on this desert road. Now it's apparent why he should go there. Go up and join this chariot. God's Spirit doesn't say, do you feel comfortable knocking on chariot doors? He didn't ask, are, are you capable of rubbing shoulders with the political elite? Um, do you like confrontational evangelism versus lifestyle evangelism? Um, do you have a spiritual gift in this area or not? Do you have a gift to reach Ethiopians? Just go speak to them. And Philip simply says in his heart, yes, sir. Go up and join this chariot. Now, the Spirit of God is the one who brings people to himself. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And so before we become Christians, God begins to orchestrate circumstances in our life. He brings people our way. He, he crafts the circumstances so that we might at some point come under the call of the gospel. I was 18 years old when I believed Christ as my Savior. Gone to church every week of my life. When, on my 18th birthday, my mother said I'd missed just two days. One was a Sunday when I was born. And the other was I was in the hospital because I had gotten my arm caught in a lawnmower. Otherwise, I'd been there my whole life, but never heard truth. I believe in God's providence. I've shared with some of you. God spared my grandfather, who was 86 years old, so that I could tell him what had happened to me. He had never heard it before, had gone to the same church for 86 years, received Christ as his Savior. He died a week later. Now, how do you stay sensitive to God where you don't miss opportunities? Well, you have to spend some time with the Lord in His Word. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the 19th century, said this, Satan will do anything to interrupt your time with Jesus Christ, even if it means adjusting the window shade. John R.W. Stott, now in heaven, the great Anglican uh, pastor and theologian and communicator, was speaking to a group of pastors at a the Keswick Con Conference, and he said this, the development of our inner lives is the first priority for every Christian, including the pastor. But then he admitted a rather strange paradox in his own life. He said, the thing I know that will give me the deepest joy, namely to be alone and unhurried in the presence of God, aware of his presence, my heart open to him, is often the thing I least want to do. Why? Because we're in a spiritual battle. You go to plan to spend some time with the Lord, and you get 10,000 reasons why you don't. Why? Because the evil one, whose goal is to take as many people into the eternal lake of fire where his last place of residence will be, he doesn't want you to grow. He'll keep you, if he can, out of the Scripture. So you must be sensitive to the call of God. Secondly, there on your outline, you must be sharing the Christ of God. You know, there are a lot of people who call themselves missionaries who are out there building buildings and digging wells and planting crops and educating people and dispensing medicine. And that's all good if it gives you an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But if it doesn't, it's a colossal failure. 
and it's a waste of money. Look, this church has over 300 missionaries we support monthly, and one of the questions on the questionnaire is, when was the last time you personally took someone through the plan of salvation? Oh, you know, two years ago, and you want me to support you three or $400 a month to go to a foreign country where the culture is different, the language is different, and you can't even share the gospel here? Now, you may not go overseas, but you can go next door. Look at verse 30. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? He ran up. Again, the timing is important. One, he, he, he needs to meet the chariot, but he needs to be there right at the right time. Isaiah is a big scroll. Remember, at this point, there was no codexes. There's no books. That doesn't happen until the fourth century. The prophet Isaiah is a thick scroll. In fact, he's called a major prophet, not because he's more important, but because of the length, a term that maybe, unfortunately, we've used since the fourth century. And Isaiah is longer than all the 12 minor prophets put together. They're shorter. So he's working through the scroll, and in the providence of God, he's in Isaiah 53. It's like an eyewitness standing at the foot of the cross, explaining ever before it happens all that is going to unfold on the day that the Lord Jesus is crucified. So he asked him an important question. Do you understand what you're reading? Notice he took the initiative. He could have said to himself, well, I'm from Israel and he's a black African. There might be a race barrier or he is an important politician. I'm just a preacher. No, he he takes the initiative. He could have reasoned, well, he's reading the Bible. I don't want to interrupt his time with the Lord. He asks a simple question. He takes the initiative. Do you understand what you are reading? Look, we need to see open doors when God provides them. We don't need to break doors down and be obnoxious. When God begins to open up a person's heart, you don't want to miss that. He's under direct orders. He doesn't say to this guy, hey, man, you're a wicked sinner. You need to repent. He just asks, do you understand what you're reading? And it's good to have a few questions to ask people. Sometimes God opens a door and he turns the subject to spiritual things. Sometimes they know I'm a pastor. Sometimes they have no idea what I do. I'll say, you know, as a Christian, I'm always interested in trying to encourage people spiritually. And I meet some people who've gone to church their whole life. And some people just go a couple times a year. I meet some people who've read the Bible cover to cover a dozen times and other folks who don't even own a Bible and everything in between. So I want to be sensitive to folks. Can I ask you a question? And I'll say, on a scale of zero to 100, zero, I have no idea. And 100, I have no doubt. I'm absolutely positive. How certain are you if you died in the next 10 seconds that you go to heaven? Are you 25, 50, 75, 100? By the way, wherever you're watching in the world today, how would you answer that? Are you 25, 50, 75, or 100? Where would you put yourself on that scale? And if God opens the door wide, I want to walk through it. I don't typically like to just leave people attract. Because like the eunuch, how can I understand what Isaiah is writing about unless someone explains it to me? Now, if I do leave them the tract, I leave them, would you like to know God is your friend? Because there's kind of running commentary in that tract where we explain the verses as to what they mean. But you don't want to miss opportunities. Put out in the margin, would you, next to this verse, Colossians 4, 3 and 4. Colossians 4, 3 and 4. Knowing how important the gospel is for people to hear, notice what Paul asked the church at Colossae to pray him, pray for him in two areas. One, praying at the same time, 
for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word. So on the one hand, the Scripture says, go and preach the gospel to all creation, but God doesn't call you to talk to everyone. So you want to ask, well, God, who do you want me out of this planet of approximately 8 billion people? Who do you want me to share the gospel with? Pray for an open door. You say, if I pray for an open door of opportunity, God might bring someone. I'm not sure what I would say. Well, look at the second half of his prayer request. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Here's a great theologian who wrote the Constitution of Christianity in the book of Romans. And he says, pray for me that I can make the gospel clear. It would seem like that's a given. But listen, when you start praying, God, give me an open door. And when that door comes, help me to make it clear. Just watch what God does. So the eunuch invites him into the chariot. Look at verse 32. Now the passage of scripture, which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its share is silent. So he does not open his mouth. Now, the text tells me, it's a messianic text, it's about the Messiah, that he is silent, like a sheep before its sharers. And of course, the Lord Jesus before the Sanhedrin, we studied them a little bit last week, was silent. He is ridiculed, he's scourged by Pilate, he's scoffed at by the soldiers, but he never defends his innocence. Why? That he might be found guilty, that you and I could be found guilty innocent. There were 12 legions of angels overlooking the battlements of heaven. One angel comes down in one Old Testament text and wipes out 185,000 of Israel's enemies. But Jesus doesn't call down a single angel. He permits those men to take him, to nail him to the cross as a lamb before its shearers is silent. In humiliation, verse 33, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate? his generation, for his life is removed. It's cut off, the Hebrew text says. It's cut off. It means he's exterminated from the earth. He, he, he's crucified. And of course, Isaiah describes crucifixion here 700 years before Christ, ever before it's thought up by the Persians and perfected by the Romans as a means of capital punishment. Pierce through for our iniquity. Why? Because God knows the future. The eunuch answered Philip, verse 34, and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Who is Isaiah talking about? Of himself or of someone else? Now, that's a great question. He wanted to know the identity of the pronouns, he and his. Who is Isaiah referring to? You talk about someone ripe, someone open, kind of like Paul's asked by the jailer. He and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think he's ripe. Uh, Peter is preaching to the thousands of Jews on the day of Pentecost, and they say, brethren, what shall we do? Verse 35, we're told, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, and that's where all effective evangelism is done, your first birth came through perishable seed. My dad is dead, his dad is dead, his dad is dead. I'm from a long line of perishable seed. But we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, the tool that the Spirit of God uses to bring about a second birth is the Scripture. So the text says he preached Jesus to him. Remember, the first book of the New Testament had not yet been written. For nearly seven years, all the early church had was the Old Testament Scriptures. 
to preach Jesus, but he's there. He said, Abraham saw my day and believed. Moses wrote about me. It's all about Jesus. Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me. And he preached Jesus. He didn't preach critical race theory or social justice. He didn't preach about economics or talk about how hot it was down in Gaza. No, he preached Jesus, the one whom Isaiah would already write about who would be born of a virgin. A virgin will conceive and bear a child, and the child's name by title will be called Emmanuel, that is, God with us. A baby is going to be born, but this is going to be no ordinary baby. He wrote of it earlier in this book that this baby's name will be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And he preached three simple truths. And if you're going to have the privilege to introduce someone to Christ, these are the same three simple truths you must preach. Don't make the gospel complicated. It's not. Children can grasp it. You know, sometimes people hear a sermon, they say, boy, he was so deep, I, I couldn't understand it. Look, when there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pew. <laughs> Vance Havner, the great preacher, dead now for some 30 years, said, just because the river is muddy doesn't mean that it runs deep. Three simple truths. First, Philip shared about sin. He shared about sin. Point A there in your outline. Isaiah 53, 6. In fact, why don't you turn to Isaiah? Uh, if you're new to the Bible, find Psalms. That's about dead center. If you just open your Bible to the center, you're in the book of Psalms, and scan to the right, and you'll soon find Isaiah. I started studying Isaiah 53 about eight months ago, and I've written a 356-page commentary I just finished on Isaiah. I don't know that I'll ever publish it, but this chapter is so rich. It is so full, it's just mind-blowing. Look at Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Isaiah is describing our need for Christ, and he does so by reminding us that we're like sheep gone astray. Sheep are notoriously short-sighted. They're just interested in the next clump of grass. They often don't look where they're headed. Sheep tend to be self-centered. If you ever watch them, my brother had a whole herd once in his home in Vermont, and if they'll grab the clump that's available in front of you, they'll, they'll grab it. They're just selfish, self-centered kind of animals. And they tend to travel together, and usually one ends up leaving, leading, the rest follow. And that was certainly true of the leaders in Israel. They were blind guides, and the people just followed. And so Peter, picking up on the analogy of you and I being like sheep, says in 1 Peter 2.25, for you are continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Sheep are stupid and headstrong. They've all gone astray. You say, are you talking about me, preacher? <laughs> I'm talking about me too. Yeah, we're, we're stupid. We're headstrong. We're self-centered. We want our own way. All of us like sheep have gone astray. He is reminding him that by nature we are sinful. By nature we're all fallen and sinful before the Lord. So he explained that. And he would have explained in the process that, they, that we need forgiveness. We need a different kind of righteousness. Isaiah has already said that your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. He doesn't say your, your bad deeds are like filthy rags. Your best deeds are like dirty rags in the sight of an absolutely holy God. And if you have an inadequate view of sin, you'll have an inadequate view of your need for righteousness. 
And so in Jesus's day, the Pharisees thought they were so righteous. Paul says in Romans 10, they sought to establish a righteousness of their own rather than receiving the righteousness that comes from God. Some people think they're too bad to be saved, but there's a whole lot of folks they think they're too good to be saved. They think the message I preach is for the prostitute, the drunkard, uh, the murderer, the thief, but not for them. But the Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look, if you're hanging over a cliff with a 10-link chain, how many links need to break for you to go under? Only one. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. That's how holy God is. And so the Pharisees were notorious for comparing themselves to someone else. I'm not like the prostitute. I'm not like the publican. I'm not like the drunkard. Certainly God will let me in. Look next to Hitler. I'm just a sterling example of what people should be. But God compares me to the glory of God, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, and the ground is level. He preached about sin. Secondly, Philip preached about substitution. He preached about substitution. Here at the end of Isaiah 53, 6, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of all to fall on him. The Hebrew word for fall means to strike or to attack. It was used of an army who would surround their enemy and then plunge on them. And the scripture is clear that the one who caused this to happen was the Lord God. Now, it would be easy for someone to conclude that, well, Governor Pilate was the source of the crucifixion. After all, he was the one who gave the order for Jesus to be crucified. Someone else might conclude, well, it was Judas, because Judas was the one who betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Someone else would say, well, it's the Jewish Sanhedrin. They, they trumped a false charge. They, they couldn't arrest him on a religious charge. So they said, he claims to be a king. They trumped up a political charge. Someone else might say, well, it was the Roman soldiers who, who did this because they were the ones who literally drove the nails through his hands and feet. Someone else might say, well, it was the Satan who did it. He was the one, the evil one, who literally came to inhabit Judas that night because Judas was open to it. And Judas followed his promptings. Others might say, well, it's all of us. Look at verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yes, your hard hearts were the hammers and your sins were the nails. But understand, according to Isaiah 53, 6, it was not Pilate, it was not Annas, it was not Caiaphas, it was not Satan, it was not the Sanhedrin, it was not the howling mob, it was not the soldiers, it was not even us. It was the Lord God. God caused this. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, it's the preposition ante in Greek, for or in the place of many. Jesus came to die in our place. He wasn't dying for his sin, for he had none. The resurrection proves that. Every calendar affirms it and confesses it. B.C. before Christ, 2021, Anna Domini, in the year of the Lord. He died for you. He died in your place. Verse 7, 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Again, he never defended himself. Look at substitution in verse 10 as it's described. But the Lord, that is Yahweh, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper him. God, the Lord Jehovah was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. This was God's pleasure. Why? Because God loves to forgive. You say, does God really love me? He loves you this much. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus was bearing the wrath that your sin, that my sin deserves. It was planned. It was prophesied when Peter stood up. He said in the book of Acts that Jesus' death, that he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was all God's plan. And Isaiah writes of it 700 years before. In fact, God begins to write of it in the book of Genesis. The death of the servant. But it's not just a death. There's a resurrection. He will see his offspring. Literally, he will see his seed. Now, you might live to see one or two generations. Very rarely, you'll meet someone who lives and sees three generations because they're married like at 16 or something, and their kids get married earlier. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And the seed that Scripture describes of the Messiah are children of God, for as many as received him. To them he has given the right to be called children of God. I have it circled all these verses. He was stricken. He was smitten. He was afflicted. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was oppressed. He was scourged. By the way, they're all in a past tense. Unlike modern Hebrew, ancient Hebrew has neither past, present, or future. It's determined by structure. And this is what we call a prophetic perfect. When you wanted to write something, you wanted to emphasize that what I'm writing about this future event is so sure to happen, you write it like it's in the past tense, like it already happened. And that's what the prophet is doing. So Philip explained, no doubt, Isaiah 53, 11 to him, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge of the righteous one, My servant, Jesus, will justify the many. Look, if you're going to go to heaven, you need to be justified. You say, what does that mean? We are justified by faith and we have peace with God, the Scripture says. The word justified means just as if you had never sinned, but more importantly, just as if you had always obeyed. A great exchange takes place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If this bulletin is me, I am born separated, stained, guilty. By nature, the scripture says, I'm a child of wrath, unless I am an unaccountable child. But when I receive Christ, I am placed in Christ. He made him, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, who was sinless, to be sin on your behalf. On the cross, the sin of all time was laid on Christ. He bore our sin in his own body on the cross, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. God sees Carl Brogy through his son. He sees me as holy because I've received the one who took my place there on Golgotha. He took our sin that we might take his righteousness Your righteousness by nature is like a filthy rag. 
But if you will receive Jesus, he will forgive every blot and stain that you have ever committed. Then Philip's shared simple faith, not just about sin, not just about substitution, but simple faith. Um, the eunuch, using Isaiah 53, has preached how he would die, how he'd be raised, how he'd see his offspring, but none of that is any good unless you respond in faith. So go back to Acts 8. We're almost done. Acts 8, verse 36. And they went along the road. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? That's interesting. Now, in some Bibles, it's at the bottom of the page because there's some ancient manuscripts that don't contain it. But the best manuscripts contain it, and so in the New American Standard, King James, so forth, it's in the body of the text, and rightly so. And it's critical. Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? You have to believe. Put out in the margin next to verse 37, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? Because it's the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes, you have to believe. How about Romans 4, 4 and 5? Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. You work hard at the end of the week, they hand you a paycheck. That's not a favor, you owe it. The person just did the work. But by contrast to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Who will God reckon as righteous, as holy in his sight? The one A who doesn't work for it. You work for it, you're basically saying, I'm a good enough person to get into heaven and God won't let you in. The person who sees himself as ungodly. Paul will later write in Romans 11 and verse 6, but if it, your salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. This is what Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Now quickly, one last point. You must be sensitive to God's call. You must share Yeshua, Jesus, the Christ of God. Third, you must ask people to submit to the command of God. You have to ask them to submit to God's command. Philip carries out the command of the Lord Jesus to baptize saved people. And there are three lessons that we learn from this baptism. First, baptism was conditioned on faith. It was conditioned on faith. In the Great Commission, Jesus tells us to preach the gospel to the lost, and then he asks us to baptize the saved. He says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven on an earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to obey the one who has all authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You could paraphrase it. Make converts, make believers of all nations, baptizing them, not in the names but in the name singular, we worship one God who manifests himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So here's the eunuch, verse 36. Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And notice the condition. It's what we just read in Matthew 28. If you believe with all your heart, you may. You have to first become a disciple, make a convert, then you baptize them. 300 years later, man reversed it. We started baptizing little infants, later asking them to believe. It's just the opposite in the Bible. Believe and then be baptized. Make disciples, then baptize them. You can be baptized if you believe with all your heart. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's his unashamed public confession of faith. All his life had been a preparation for this moment. The education that allowed him to read the scripture, the high position that qualified him to travel to Jerusalem, the wealth that enabled him to buy an actual scroll of the prophet Isaiah. 
his interest in Judaism that had left him dead and wanting and searching on the inside. Nothing's wasted in his life and nothing is wasted in yours. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so Philip the evangelist was not ashamed to baptize him. And I tell people all the time, if you're not ashamed to confess Jesus is Lord, I'm not ashamed to baptize you. Secondly, baptism is executed by immersion. Not only is it conditioned on faith, it's executed by immersion, verse 38. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both, circle those words, they both, they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, this is important. He first examines him. He wants to make sure they're a believer. And we try to do that as best we can, humanly speaking. If a person doesn't know what the plan of salvation is, then they can't be baptized because you can't believe in something you don't first know. Philip didn't go to the edge of the water and say, well, let me get a handful and just sprinkle you. Or he didn't say, let me get a cup and pour it on you. The text says they went down into the water and then he baptized them. There's a Greek word for sprinkling, for pouring. He uses the Greek word baptizo. It means to submerge or to immerse. The text says they both went down into the water, verse 39. Then it says they came up out of the water. Why is immersion done by 90% of Bible-believing Christians worldwide? Because that's what the Scripture teaches. It's not rocket science, and it's only immersion that can picture what you're confessing. When you're laid on your back, you don't bury people vertically. You lay them on their back, you put them in the ground. It's a symbol of death, burial, resurrection. You're saying to those watching, as the five we baptized this morning, I'm going into heaven because of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. Nothing I've done I've put my faith in the one who died and was raised for me. And then third, baptism is followed by joy. It's followed by joy. Look, if you will, now at verse 39. And they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. That word snatch is interesting. You know, there's a famous passage of Scripture most of you know. We call it the rapture for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be snatched, caught up, harpazo, same word. God sometimes gives us a foretaste of an event that's going to happen in the future ever before it happens. They're out in the Sea of Galilee, horrible storm. Jesus walks in the water, gets in the boat, stops the storm, and then the Bible says, and immediately... The boat was on the other side. Wow. Here's Philip. He's snatched. He's caught up. Where does he end up? Azotus. Captain Kirk doesn't have anything on us. Man, he's suddenly gone. He's caught up, snatched away. And he goes to this place called Azotus. And the text says, verse 39, he, the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. It's interesting, the first half of the chapter describes Simon the sorcerer, a fake believer, and he's filled with fear. Here is the eunuch, he is a genuine believer, and he's filled with joy. And that's what obedience does. Look, anybody who tells you baptism saves you, helps saves you, washes away sin, they have misrepresented the Bible. It doesn't do any of those things. It's a symbol, but it's more than a symbol. This ring on my finger is a symbol that I am married. I put it on 41 years ago. The ring didn't marry me. God married me. It's just emblematic. But if I wore a ring without being married, it would be an empty symbol. 
To be baptized before you're saved, it's just as empty. That's why infants aren't baptized in the Bible. There's not one thread of one half of one verse where an infant is baptized. Man made that up. People who find infant baptism in the Bible, that's called eisegesis, where you read into the text. God has called a pastor to be faithful to exegeting the text, to read out what he has plainly said. You can't make up stuff. You make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean when you do that. But while it's a symbol, it's more than a symbol. It's an act of obedience. When you obey the Lord, your joy is full. Philip was found at Azotus. And passing on, he preached the gospel all the way to Samaria. Man, just 35, 40 miles away, suddenly gone. How are we going to apply this passage? Three simple applications. Number one, sharing Christ consistently, that's what we're talking about this morning, is preceded by personal holiness. What do I mean by personal holiness? I just mean walking in obedience. A vessel for God's use, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. This was a man whom Acts 6 described as full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. I already said that God never leaves a surrendered vessel unfilled, and God never leaves a filled vessel unused. God will use you, but not if your heart's out of sync. Secondly, sharing Christ consistently is dependent upon selfless availability. You have to be available. Here's a man who was involved in a great revival But God calls him to leave the spotlight to go to this out-of-sight kind of place. He leaves center stage where multitudes are responding to go backstage in a desert. That's what we need in evangelicalism today, a little bit of humility. Too many Christian celebrities who are impressed with themselves like a who's who and a who's not so who. We need some people who are just willing to be faithful and to to be out in the trenches talking to people about Jesus, not showmen. Oh, you give me a big audience, I'll preach. That's not a test of humility. It's what you do with your next-door neighbor. Third, sharing Christ consistently is expressed through a personal understanding of biblical truth. I mean, here's Philip. He's full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Where do you get wisdom? Right here in this book. You say, Pastor, I, I can't memorize Scripture. You'll never make me believe that. If I gave you $1,000 for every verse you memorize, you would become a memorization machine. It's an issue of priority. There's some basic verses every Christian should hide in their hearts that we will be ready, sensitive to the call of God when the door is open, sharing Christ. That's whom we preach. Beginning with this text, he preached Jesus. And then when men and women and boys and girls are converted, we ask them to take the first step of obedience and to be baptized. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning. We who deserve nothing, you've given us everything in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the incredible forgiveness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your body on the cross, you took all of my sin, past, present, and future, that I might be forgiven and have new life. Help someone today who's not really sure of salvation, not sure that heaven is their home. Thank you for your promise that whosoever will may come. 
that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help someone in simple faith, believing your word, knowing that you cannot lie, to simply say, Lord Jesus, save me by your death and resurrection. Now, Father, we pray for this new week. We pray especially for Friend Day at the end of the month when we will be reaching out to people in the community to come for just a simple presentation of the gospel, that you would use it in a powerful way. Help dads and moms to care for their children, for their grandchildren. In the most relevant area of life, you remind us throughout Scripture that we can provide intellectually, physically, socially, but if we leave them bankrupt spiritually, we've done too little. So help us to care about souls. Thank you that someone cared about my soul. Help us to care about people that they might find forgiveness in new life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.